Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. When looking at the news, and I don't recommend looking at the news very often, we can be confronted by the numerous or seemingly innumerable wicked problems that we're facing as a country, as a global community, and even as a species. And looking at the news, looking at social media, again, not recommended, it can all seem pretty hopeless. It might be comforting, though, or maybe not so comforting, to think that while these challenges may seem insurmountable, we faced great challenges before. This is not the first time as a species or as a global community, we were confronted with global threats that seem to threaten our very existence. And what feels overwhelming today, when in comparison or when in comparison, might stand in the shadows of those former challenges. And so we might take heart knowing that this is not the first time we've needed to make big changes. The great abolitionist Frederick Douglass famously said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and never will. So when we're looking at these challenges around these wicked problems, these things that seem very complex and almost insurmountable, we can see often power and profit, the resistance to seed, privilege, and position to be foundational elements of the challenge to make positive change. It's not that these problems exist on their own. These problems are usually put in position by people who are gaining in some kind of way from them, as ironic as that might seem. Mm -hmm. And so it might seem that to face these big challenges, we need big solutions. We have to aim for the, you know, the, the moon. We have to think in terms of grand blue sky strategies. But at the same time, we also need to keep in mind that great changes can come from very humble beginnings and that small actions can have big impacts. Totally true. And, th- and that kind of reminds me of um, Spider-Man. Right. You know, the, 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 the superhero mantra, right. That like oftentimes great things can come from, from these small beginnings. Um, and what's cool is that when we bring those ideas, I guess from Marvel, but also I, I really like what you're saying there that uh, kind of over to, um, what we'll be diving in today is that this really brings these important questions of social responsibility and designing, you know, around social change. And so to help us think through these conversations, we're going to be chatting with professor and attorney David Johnson from Stanford University. And David has extensive experience working as a general counsel for high-tech firms in Silicon Valley. So working with a lot of the you know, high-powered tech companies and product services that fuel a lot of our social lives. You know, the sometimes ironic social media that we're just talking about too, if that's that's difficult to pay attention to. <laughs> um, they need advice too, it turns out. What's interesting though with David is that before he worked as this general counsel in this attorney space, he actually got his start as a marine biology student and was thinking and had the intention to do environmental and oceanographic studies. Interesting way that life kind of moves us in in strange directions sometimes. You know, and now while that path didn't totally pan out, it did teach him the importance of thinking about systems. And with that, the need to think in terms of how things are interconnected. And after his law career got kicked off, teaching at Stanford brought him back into touch with his passion for the environment. 
And so you got to be able to combine this passion for the environment with legal experience to help explore environmental activism and law. So a really, really cool uh, pathway. So even when it seems like things don't always work out the way we want, sometimes, you know, the, the results can be even better in terms of how things combine and, and uh, evolve. So we'll be talking with David about examples of things like social activism that started small, but resulted in these really big and powerful changes. David describes the design of a type of activism starter kit, which I really love this idea, highlighting these inspirational stories of social activism to inspire and direct contemporary and future generations looking that, to make a difference. These tools are part of his search to identify what are the elements that need to exist for a single action to trigger a moment for effective change. I think this is a really powerful idea too. How do we figure out and understand what are those moments that we need to have in place to help make happen that then we can kind of kick off and trigger change. Now, ultimately, when you design things well, good things can happen, right? And when you design social change and activism experience as well, turns out you might just save a planet. So here we go, looking at turning moments into movements, looking at making small, big changes through small events and how our lives the journey of our lives can be circuitous, but we always end up right where we're supposed to be and how we can integrate different elements of our past and our passions to make the changes we want to see in the world. Great conversation. Hope you enjoy it. You know, the, the first thing I was wondering... I don't get it. Luckily, I don't get a chance to speak to very many general counsels because uh, I don't know that anybody wants to speak to a lot of general counsels. When you were doing the work of general counsel, were there people that were actually happy to see you? Or I mean, was it what is it like being that person who folks come to talk to and how, what impact did it have on your uh, emotional yeah. state in the workplace? Yeah, it's an interesting <laughs> question. Most lawyers love being a general counsel or in-house as compared to the option of being in a firm. Um you know, your question takes me back to a little bit of wisdom that I got uh, long ago when I was practicing law in Miami as a young lawyer, in fact, from an old fellow in Key West of all places. And he's on the phone with me and we're just getting to know each other. He goes, can I, and, and I will self-edit here. He goes, everybody hates effing lawyers <laughs> until, except for their own. Right. You know? And so to answer your question in a company, um, the people who want slash need something from the general counsel that helps them in their job is happy to see the general counsel. Right. If the general counsel represents a threat or some pressure pushback on what they're trying to do in their job, then nobody wants to hear from the general counsel or anybody in legal. Right. The, the general conception uh, although I think it's falling away uh, more and more, has always been legal should stay away, stay out of the business. And if you have to, if you have to engage legal, do it as little as possible um, and try to avoid ever having to engage legal in doing whatever business, product development, financial work, et cetera, you need in the company. More mature companies and uh, really more mature experienced leadership, meaning CEOs and COOs, will understand the value of having some legal looped in early because it's a preventative measure. And so right. more and more business cultures are seeing that, particularly with a GC who gets it and has a light touch, um, 
and has a team-centered approach. Uh, legal can be your friend uh, in avoiding downstream problems um, or giving you a green light to do something that you're unsure of. Right. Um, but there are times when nobody wants me to darken their doors. So. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that, that visual of, you know, given oh, that yeah. you, you told me how tall you were, um, you know, if you were wearing a black suit, just hovering outside someone's door, you know, uh, I don't know. It's not looking good for him. There's, there's a, there's a dark presence over there. I, it, I actually have still have in my coterie, uh, an all black suit for just those purposes. Right. I would imagine it's pretty effective because you, you would, you would cut a pretty striking figure anyway, being six, five and, uh, being general counsel and wearing a black suit. And if you just had a sickle or yeah. something or a scythe, that would just, you know, on that point, let me tell you a little story. Cause I think, uh, from a sociological perspective, you'll find this interesting. Um, and I'll presage this with this. Cause I was just reading this yesterday in Kahneman's book, thinking fast, thinking slow. I'm right. sure you're familiar with that. Yep. And he talks about the, the gorilla videotape. Right, 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 right. Okay, so so the audience knows there's this trick that he that the experimenter plays, asking people to focus on something in the foreground of a video, and then somebody in a gorilla suit is walking back and forth in the background, and fully fifty percent of the people who go through the test never see the guy right. in the gorilla suit, and it's and it is intended to demonstrate how a focused mind can block out other things. So, I was working. Uh, as a volunteer in 2008 for the Obama, actually for, for the Obama campaign, which was uh, basically the convention in Denver. So, um, and my job was backstage. So I had to have kind of a presence. So I wore this black suit I was <laughs> talking about, right? So I wore the black suit and I wore the tie and everything. And they give you an earpiece right. and uh, comms. Well, and a bunch of badges that hang around your neck. Well, all of a sudden you start to look like enough like Secret Service that people think that that's what you are. And I, I spent a lot of time trying to convince people, you know, all right, I'm just here to sort of help you find your seat and that sort of thing. Well, one day I'm going into the convention, actually the last day when it's going to be most crowded, they've increased the security perimeter. So right. I walk up to a couple of local police officers who are holding the perimeter. And I walk up to these guys and they say, guys, I want you to know I am not Secret Service, just a volunteer, but I'm wondering if you'll let me walk through uh, get on the, the tram so I don't have to walk a mile to get to the convention. Right. One cop looks at the other cop and then he looks at me, he goes, you're effing secret service. You right. can go wherever you want. That's he exactly never, what the secret service would say. He never, <laughs> he never heard me say I'm not secret service. Somehow or another, it didn't, because the assumption was so strong. Right. Um, that the words didn't even penetrate to pierce that assumption. I, I really think, I, I thought that was so fascinating and a little troubling at the same time, but fascinating. Absolutely. And it, ma it makes me think about, well, you know, if you were to start talking into your, um, your cufflink, that would have been perfect. Yeah. <laughs> because just, just to play it up even more, the idea of perception, right, which is so pivotal to the work that I do as a sociologist, and I yeah. think to, to, to most things and including the law, you know, to, to, to the extent which we perceive not just lawyers, but the law. Mm -hmm. And uh, I teach a course in criminal and social justice. 
by no means a lawyer. I've watched a lot of Judge Judy. And this idea <laughs> that the law is for the people, but indecipherable or inaccessible um, to the people. Mm. And yeah. this kind of duality between those two things, and it does, you know, start to get us into your work in legal design. Mm. But more fundamentally, this this belief that, you know, who is the law for and why? And it seems as if, especially in the recent days, there's all these discussions about legal processes and procedures and accountability and justice. And so when you're teaching these college classes for aspiring lawyers, is it you know, to what extent do you engage in the larger discussion about the law as part of society or the law as apart from society? Yeah, great question. We talk about it quite a bit. Some courses more so than other. Um, some professors tend to be more theoretical in the area of jurisprudence or theory of law. Uh, and, you know, if you're going to teach uh, or take a course in theory of law. Right buckle your seatbelt for right. a lot of theory, but at the right. same time, it can be brought down to earth and discussed in real pragmatic terms. You know, it's easy right now to talk about theory of law with respect to statutory interpretation, which takes you to constitutional interpretation, right. which takes you to the difference between originalism, uh, textualism, and the living, breathing document, right. um, compare and contrast with all of the other constitutions around the world, et cetera. And you realize that theory of law really does have impact on day-to-day -day operation right. of law. So they are intertwined, but the academy doesn't do, I would say, a really strong job of moving past, you know, first base. So they'll take, they'll take the students from theory, understand the theory to maybe one first stop. Uh, this, this, these are examples of how theory might impact uh, law on the ground, but it's usually at the institutional level, like courts, right. like Congress, um, where 90% of the people and thus 90% of a practicing lawyer's clients are going to be is down that stream to the place where they need a lawyer to do something for them, whether it's a commercial transaction, whether it's will, uh, wills and trusts, et cetera, et cetera. All of the things that, that are the volume, the, the primary volume of legal work out there in the country, um, Legal theory starts to fall away and access to justice, which is what you were referring to, right. is primary. How does a person of average or below average means? I mean, if you think, if you will buy into the thought experiment that the, everything in the world is falls onto a bell curve, then fully half the people on the left half of that bell curve are uh, in a position where they don't have the means right. to really afford a lawyer to go forward. They need to finagle their way or make their way through the legal system. And I would like to see more uh, pure legal theorists in the academy talk about the problems on the ground for access of access to justice. It's not just justice, access to law. Right. Access to justice is a narrower piece of it. You know, can Fair. I get into the courtroom? Can I get an, a, a court order? Can I get a, t uh, a restraining order? Uh, how do I get a restraining order? Or I tried to get a restraining order and I was turned down because I didn't tick a part the uh, the correct box. Well, right. it w the correct box was jar in jargon. So right, how am right, I supposed right. to know? Um, all of these things, they're real problems. And there's a lot of people in law schools 
mostly, to be honest, uh, adjuncts and uh, clinical people rather than academic tenured theoreticals uh, professors who are working on trying to solve for access to justice. It's a big problem in the law. There's, that's, there's no doubt about it. I like the term, the theoreticals. I was just at a sociology conference and there were a lot of theoreticals running around. And uh, I, um, for the, maybe the, one of the really first times in my career, I don't know why, it just hit the, the idea of imposter syndrome hit me because doing so much applied work as I do, it's, it, you know, you're talking with people who are publishing, who are doing the theoretical stuff. And it, it just does not feel at least didn't to me feel like home. Whereas mm. if I'm talking to people who are out in the world doing work, I have much more comfort. I'm trying to figure out at what point did I completely go native, <laughs> you know, yeah. away, yeah. away from the discipline in a, yeah. in a certain respect yeah. and into this out, outer world of, of, of the practice of sociology versus the thinking about sociology. Yeah. Um, I'm a believer that there's there's a place for both, at least in law. I think there's a place for both. And being having been educated in a very broad sense, liberal arts education in college, I appreciated the ability to explore a little bit of theory in sociology, in anthropology, in religion, et cetera, right. et cetera. Um, there's a time and a place for exposure to that. I think it rounds out the student. It creates, it's at least a portion of the base understanding uh, of the field. Um, when you get into a place where you're training professionals, whether it's in a PhD program, law program, medical program, then I think you start to have to really take into account the balance between the value of the theoretical um, and the value of the practical. You know, we do need professors and we do need scholars to do the work in the uh, scholarship realm. That's right, fine. Right. But those people are what? 10, 15% of the overall number of professionals in a space out there right. in the world. Um, and so you really, I think we, the, all graduate schools probably need to do a better job focusing on the 85% uh, that are are not going to be, you know, in the law in the law business in the law school business, we we have this we collectively probably just at Stanford, Yale is seen as the place where you go if you want to be a judge. Yale spits out really? judges, judges and professors. Huh. Harvard spits out corporate lawyers and financial uh, uh, wizards, and sometimes and, substandard senators, and and. Um, <laughs> They are, they're on a run right now, <laughs> substandard senators. And uh, Stanford, actually, because of Silicon Valley, has tilted more in the, in the direction of technology but, okay. uh, and intellectual property. But Stanford has always been sort of an interesting little blend of the two. Not so much. Not very many Stanford students will go to Wall Street just because of the geography. Uh, if you want to go to Wall Street, you might as well stay on the East Coast. But uh there's this sense that certain schools put out uh, certain uh, students right. uh, in, in, in certain silos. And I, I don't know there's anything bad about it so long as the students know what they're getting into. Right, right, right. Um, and I, as you're talking about your, you know, this, ed, you know, the education that you received, and I was, you know, I would love to hear some point about how you go from marine biology to general <laughs> counsel, but this, you know, the, the, the problems that, that we're facing that you talk about, whether it's around activism, 
And I did want to talk about the, the this brilliant display in terms of the activism breakdown that's on your website, which I thought was really impressive mm. or around climate change. You know, these, these complex, wicked problems are way too demanding for anyone discipline and the extent to which we are moving or need to move from a specialization mindset mm. to more of a dilettante generalist mindset with the ability, <laughs> the key ability to integrate rather yeah. than um, fixate on a small narrow range of yeah. theory or topics. Yeah. You know, um, I'm going to start by mentioning because he's candidly one of my heroes, Steven Schneider, was a faculty member at University of Colorado Boulder early on. He's a climatologist, was, he's passed. A climatologist, and he died way too young for us. Um, and uh, he was the first to computer model a global climate in what back then was would be seen as a rudimentary way. He came to Stanford after a period of time. I got a chance to... Uh, get to know him and and uh, learn under him when I was a student, and he was a huge champion of interdisciplinary work. But right. he meant it in a very specific way. He differentiated between multidisciplinary work and interdisciplinary right. work. The way he he talked about it was was basically like this: We've been doing in universities multidisciplinary work for decades, if not longer. You get. You find a problem, you get two, three, four, five people from different disciplines in the university who are relevant to the problem you're looking at. And you basically take a committee approach to writing the paper, looking at the, doing the study, whatever it might be. And he says, that's all fine and we should continue to do that. But what we need now are interdisciplinary people who have those disciplines in one mind. Right. And, and he says, the university, the silos that are departments and fields in universities are set up based on assumptions from centuries, centuries ago. Right. But the problems that we're facing in the real world today do not respect the silos of universities. They fall in the interstitial space between two, three, five, seven different disciplinary silos. But we need people who can be trained and we need to reward people, PhD candidates he's talking about now, who are willing to train themselves in two or three different disciplines and right. basically create a, 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 a de facto new discipline within one mind. And his code on this was, and there's one trick to this, and that is you have to study your secondary and tertiary disciplines deeply enough so that you do not get fooled by them. You're never going to be as deep as your first or uh, uh, your prior discipline, but you have to understand it well enough. And he makes a great point. So it's very difficult to become a true interdisciplinarian. I don't claim to be one myself, but uh, it's the direction that, that he was trying to urge both Stanford and other universities to go in to move the structures of the university in the direction of creating more interdisciplinarians because of society, modern societies, like you say, wicked problems. 
And for a person like yourself who was familiar with, you know, Miami courtrooms, which I'm sure has a fascinating set of stories, but then going into a corporate space and that bureaucracy, I've been in academia for a long time, I guess now, um, especially going to a conference and seeing young people. I'm like, wow, I've been doing this for a long time. (laughs) And and I think that people get surprised by the bureaucratic um, cement of Mm -hmm. academia that, that feels like you can't move it without a jackhammer of sorts. Mm -hmm. And I was, I'm curious as you, as you came into the academic world as a, as a professor, how, what your perception expectations were to what you found in terms of the inability to make these kinds of transitions into where we need to go to deal with these significant issues that we're facing. I guess the first expectation I came into, you know, I had been a student at Stanford, so I was familiar with Stanford's structure, particularly the law school. Um, And I had a much higher expectation when I got into teaching that I was going to see more students uh, taking courses at the business school um, and at different places in the university, different schools, whether it was philosophy and not dual degree programs, but just taking other courses or building their own sort of quasi liberal arts education, but building an education outside the confines, the strict confines of law school. I saw very little of that. Um, And curiously at the time, at at the same time, Larry Kramer, who was the dean at the time, had made it his project to change the academic schedule for the law school, which was on semesters, to terms, two semesters, three terms, because the rest of the university was on terms. And it turns out the reason students were unable to go take classes elsewhere is because of the structural problem. And so talk about breaking concrete. Larry Kramer (laughs) had to get out the jackhammer. But he had to do it on the faculty of the law school to get them to get on board, changing the calendar to to terms. The students were all for it. So once that happened, I actually see a lot more of uh, law students migrating out into the school, including in the D school. Uh, The design school at Stanford operates like everybody else on on terms. And uh, I don't really advertise or publicize my D school class to uh, the law school. And yet I've started to see more and more law students drift over. I try to create a classroom that is as diverse substantively subject matter wise as possible, a diverse in other ways too, but I don't want to have a classroom full of law students and B school students. And so I really reach out to uh, students coming from elsewhere uh, but more and more law students are starting to show up, but perhaps by word of mouth to to that class. So, uh, yeah, there's there's some movement, uh, and I'm pleased to see it. It's slower than I would have hoped, but in part right. that's because the law school doesn't strangely change their schedule, but doesn't actually, as an institution, encourage law students to really go reach out to other because it replaces it minimizes the number of headcounts in the law school courses courses and the faculty don't want that to happen. Of course, of course not. I'm surprised it just took a jackhammer to get that change and not like heavy blasting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there may have been some heavy blasting, uh, 
in the background that that we didn't get to see but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is it is you know it's one of those things and having been in academia and i have nothing but good things to say about my school you know in all honesty it's a great place and we do a really good job of this integration in many respects but you know to the extent to which you can get faculty around a table and say we need to change things and they will go yes and then say, okay, let's change things. And they will yeah. say, no, you know, and there's the, <laughs> there's the will apparently, but not necessarily the motivation or the trust mm. of, of administration or what, whatever it is, or like some of the metrics, you know, to what extent and, you know, okay, we have a headcount. And I think this just goes into some larger questions about how do we move the needle on anything, yeah. including capitalism, right? If you, Oof. you know, I've had, we've had situations before where, um, uh, deans have said, we want you to be experimental in creating new, innovative classes. Okay, well, what happens if not enough people sign up for that class? Well, then you have to make it up the next semester, which, of course, de-incentivizes doing the exact thing because yeah. students are looking for the classes that they are familiar with or have familiarity of. And you go to the dean and say, well, why can't you just change that rule? And if the class doesn't make, you're not penalized for it. Well, yeah. we, we still have to uphold the contracts. And so, you know, it's hot. If the metrics are, or the accountability structures don't change, how can we yeah. expect behavior to change um, in terms of what people are doing? Yeah. You know, that's, let's segue off of that because it towards systems, because that's sure. a really good example. You know, um, when I talk about designing uh, for systems, I almost always immediately say, you're almost never in your life going to find a situation where you're asked to design from scratch a human system. You're almost always going to be asked to look at an existing human system that is dysfunctional and ask, be asked to redesign it. And uh, my thesis uh, work included looking at uh, something called object-oriented modeling in computer software. Object modeling by, was basically invented by Grady Booch uh, and his partner Rumbaugh uh, 30, 40 years ago as a better way to uh, model the problem that is that they seek to solve with software. Uh, but it's all done, the work is all done prior to coding. And so I thought, well, hey, this is prior to coding. Uh, it's intellectual modeling, and maybe that's got some utility mm -hmm. uh, in spaces other than software because it has proven out to be one of the single biggest breakthroughs in software uh, in the last 30 years. Uh, Grady won't, I don't think, openly confess to that, but I, I, I know he knows it's true. Uh, and he's still working, uh, senior uh, designer at IBM. Um, and and the cool thing about object, one of the cool things about object modeling is it, it looks at a system with, from a very modular approach and the, the idea that you can plug and play modules and you, meaning you can pull it, the module being a rule. So it's going to be a line of code or set uh, several lines of code that is a rule function. And in order to improve the software downstream, the idea is to design it. So if you have a malfunctioning rule, in a module, or you just want to change the function of that rule in a module, all you have to do is go into that module and change the rule, tweak the rule, and maybe three or four rules that are directly attached to that rule, and then extract yourself. You've effected the redesign, 
and you haven't disrupted the rest of the system. Gotcha. Now, when you look at the system that you just described, a fairly simple one, there is no simple human system <laughs> by <true>. definition. <laughs> there is, that's very true. Where, where you say, well, why can't we just change the rule if you want us to do experimental courses and we can only get six or seven students to sign up uh, the first time we offer it because it's new, there's no word of mouth, students right. don't know what it's on. And students are always making a trade-off when they're picking classes. It's either this or that. They're, they're, there's huge opportunity cost when they go towards something that's experimental and unknown. Uh, so why can't you change that rule? Well, because that rule is locked and loaded concretized next to three, four, five, six different other rules. Wow. Um, it could be departmental rules. It could be uh, faculty, uh, you know, tenure track rules. It right. could be compensation rules. It could be job family rules. It could, all, and so you, you are, you're put in a position where the design of the system is preventing this easy fix because right. all of all the other things, like you say, you have to you have to hammer away, chip away concrete to fix this one rule, and then you end up damaging others. And that presents the, the really interesting problem of um, how to how to uh, amend a rule in a system without disrupting other rules or other aspects, other modules in the system. There's no easy answer, uh, but it takes some creativity and it takes some. Uh, it takes a designer's approach. It takes some brainstorming. And and it also, uh, you know, in a real sense, if you are really going to try and take the problem on that you described, it requires all of the stakeholders who have some say-so or skin in the game with respect to all the affected rules, requires them all in the same room at the same time. Right. People with the authority to make the decision. That's the only way it happens. If you start doing this asynchronously by floating a draft document to one group or another, um, and everybody gets to chip in and chime in and start doing this uh, across a period of weeks or months, it's going to die on the vine. Uh, yeah. and, and it just has no chance. So the design of the approach to the problem solution is itself a piece of design work that has to be considered to, to see, for the solution to ever have a chance of emerging. One of the things that I that I love studying is not just the the rules or the processes, but how people maneuver and live within those. And what, what are the practices? Mm. And so, you know, if you've been around a system long enough, you understand the ways in which you can ad hoc, circumvent, work around mm. those rule sets in order to arrive at the outcome you're looking for. And it's always been interesting to me looking at technologies like enterprise systems or, you know, other kinds of monitoring software systems of the ways in which those systems are structured around those rule sets, which may or may not capture how people actually do their work. And the law is no different, um, or, you know, or whether they're built right. around how people actually do work. And if so, then does that bring into contrast the fact that that's how the sausage gets made and it, yeah. it removes the, the veil from the orderliness, quote unquote, of the yeah. flowchart and yeah. lays bare the ugliness of everyday life. Yeah. Um, you know, there is some value to the veil uh, that keeps the ugliness of everyday life behind the scenes, I suppose. You know, your analogy brings to me, uh, it brings into stark relief the 
the things that I've seen as a general counsel in five or six companies, which is the work that gets done amongst members of the board of any company behind the scenes before a proposal is ever put on the table formally in a board meeting, a board call, much less where there's actually a motion and a vote to make this particular change. So, you know, a really good and, and, and most, you know, fairly simply, even marginally sophisticated lawyers and business people understand that, that you better get your votes before the meeting. Right. You know, in, 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 a, in that kind of a sense. But, you know, let's put this around an interesting existing issue, which is uh, Twitter versus Elon Musk. Sure. Right. Yeah. I've <laughs> right heard of now, it. Forget, the, forget the lawsuit for the moment. But every, I think everybody in your audience understands what's going on is Elon's trying to get out of the deal. And uh, Twitter, when he said, I'm not going to do the deal, Twitter had uh, a decision to make. And uh, my wife happens to have been a former Twitter employee. So she owns Twitter stock. And okay. she got the proxy in the mail saying the board is, is running shareholder vote. Right. Do we want to, to continue to proceed to make Mr. Musk purchase the company per the deal? Right. And as soon as I saw that, I said, this is, this is, this is terrific. I, I love this right. because you know that all the major shareholders knew what the answer was before that vote went out. Sure. They weren't asking for a shareholder vote. They wanted to, but my guess, my guess is that uh, it was for show. In other words, they knew that the answer was going to be, yes, we're going to file the suit. We're going to proceed uh, all the way to make Mr. Musk buy the company. My guess is they have no interest in making Elon Musk buy the company whatsoever. Nobody in the company wants Elon Musk right. to buy it. Nobody in the company wants Elon to take it private. That screws up all of their equity, their packages anyway. But uh, it also, they think, generally speaking, they think it will mess up the company and so and and the product they may be right they may be wrong who knows but that's their their viewpoint and so the whole point of this uh very public uh shareholder vote to go after elon was for the purpose of letting elon see that they're coming for him even though my heart of hearts tells me they're going to push him very very hard see how strong a case they can develop uh, without having to admit any wrongdoing with respect to their, their uh, method of counting bots for uh, DAUs and MAUs. <laughs> and then they're going to cut a deal. But right. in the process of this litigation, you know what's interesting, what you see out there? Twitter stock is now going up, closing the gap. Right. That's what they were doing. They're they're telling the market we're going to push this, and if they succeed, and if they did push it and got the judge to enter an order, they likely would succeed. That makes the stock price fifty six bucks. So there are arbitragers out there who are trying to leverage the spread one way or the other. But that stock price is now creeping up to the the Musk price, and right. then as it gets to the Musk price, I fully expect Twitter to say. Yeah, you know what? Why don't we just settle this aside and we'll stay public? You've you've done your job, Elon. You've moved our stock back up to where we want it. Right. 
and, and well, now we'll take our billion dollar breakup fee and then some damages and everybody will be happy. I, I predict that's the outcome. I could be wrong. Well, I, well, I, well, we have it on tape, but I, or digital. We don't use tape anymore. Uh, but what I love about that, and it goes to this, you know, how a savvy system seer, say that fast three times, a savvy system seer perceives the gestalt, how, you know, the, the whole of the activity, right? And so mm. what looks, you know, it looks like one thing to an outside observer, you know, that it's a lawsuit because they want to force Elon Musk to buy the company where, you know, the person who is familiar with the system, sees it the same arrangement of events a very different way Yeah, using that insider kind of knowledge and, yeah. and the, and the extent to which when you're talking about doing design work in, in the law or legal design or any kind of design, the translation of that insider knowledge, and this is where ethnography becomes so important as well. What we try to do that translation of that insider knowledge to external audiences. So they won't become expert, but they'll at least, be more familiar with how things work in a practical way. Hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that? I, I'm actually really intrigued because um, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll tell this story and then I'm going to come back and sure. put the question to you. Uh, at Stanford, between being a student and, and having taught now for some time, I've been through, I'm on my sixth dean <laughs> yeah right well i had a call a good friend of mine who had retired he said gary administrators will come and go yeah but faculty are forever I'm like yeah. that's a nice thought and our job yeah. is to merely understand what they're trying to achieve and how we can get what we want out of it that's it yeah. <laughs> so anyway two deans ago um the the dean came to our faculty group and we had a little round table and she went around the room and, and said, you know, uh, I'm interested in how you see what you're trying to accomplish in the classroom and in your teaching. Um, and, and this was a group of teachers of negotiation uh, uh, at the time. So I was kind of not talking about design. But uh, I said, as a practicing lawyer teaching law students negotiation, I am trying to convey experience. I'm not just telling them about my experiences, making that into sort of a story from which there are learnings. You can do that in any book. What I'm trying to do is actually, you know, in a metaphorically pick up my neophyte students and move them downfield, drop them 40 yards upfield as right. if they actually have accrued that 40 yards of experience that I have but I had to spend, you know, five, 10 years getting that experience. So I'm really intrigued by this, this the, the title, you know, experience by design, the title of your podcast right. and the topic, the, the issue you raised, which is how do you convey experience in a way to students uh, through, and, and you're the ethnographer, how does eth ethnography help you convey the, the material stuff of experience in a way that makes it stick so that the right. recipient really owns that, that I wouldn't say knowledge, but that wisdom that comes from experience. I think the first thing, at least when I am teaching students, you know, how to do ethnography, they approach it as if it's um, just a method. And I, I talk about it as no, it's a way of, of viewing. And it's a way of activating your senses from passive to active. So from looking into seeing from um, listening into hearing, 
right? So you, you can actually engage with and problematizing the mundane in a way that lays bare the particularities of everyday social life, right? How do we accomplish this thing that we do? And so you really have to activate the senses to get them to engage in the world that's there to be seen, much like the gorilla walking mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. the people passing the basketball back and forth. Mm-hmm. And so you, you teach them to see those things, number one, or to hear those things or to feel those things or to activate those senses. And then at, once you create that openness, then you can start you know, filling that glass that is now empty because now mm. everything that they thought was familiar is strange. Right. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, there's the old Zen saying that, you know, I think it's a Zen saying, I'm not quite sure, but you can't fill a, You can't fill. Um, you can't add anything more to an already full glass. Mm. You know, this idea of beginner's mind is that you have to be an empty glass. So how do mm. we get students who in your sense don't know, but they think they know, right. And no one comes into the law department thinking, you know, never having an, not having any idea of what law is. Yeah. They might think they know. And then you got to kind of get them into a space of knowing, not from this preconceived notion or what they read about in their books in a sterile kind of way, but the, how the thing actually works. And so when we think about experience by design, I think we think about not just um, the, the, the design of experiences uh, from a static perspective that is disconnected, but from an integrated perspective that being connected augments, amplifies, exacerbates um, the experiences that people are having together. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So two things come to mind. Um, and I'll put Carlos Castaneda and seeing over sure. on the left on the left for the moment. But uh, there's an there is an old Zen saying, and I think you're right. You 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 did catch that as a Zen saying. There's another one where the Zen master uh, and his student are out at night looking at the moon, and uh, the Zen master. Uh, holds up his finger and points to the moon and says to the student, see the moon. And the student looks up and the master says, never mistake my finger for the moon. Right. And Alan Watts, uh, circa 1960 out here in San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken, uh, kind of in one of his books, I think it was Doesn't Matter, one of his books talks about the kind of Americanizes it. He says, Americans have this bad habit of mistaking the menu for the meal. That's a great expression. Isn't it? Yeah. And, um, because the meal has so much richness in, you know, all five senses or maybe even all six senses uh, where the menu is basically one or two dimensional at best in the only sense you're really using is is your sight to read it. And right. so that to me is has really always sort of exemplified this, this notion of the, the difference between a marker or a pointer and the thing itself. Right. Uh, and, you know, the phrase I use in negotiation uh, is heightened awareness. I okay. teach, I, I, I focus really hard on drilling into the students this sense that there are certain times, not always, you know, it's like being in the zone as an athlete. You can't always be in the zone, but you need to be able to go into the zone when it's when it's necessary at peak moments in the game. 
And in peak moments of the negotiation, you have to have a heightened awareness. This is something I learned by trial and error, pardon the pun, by doing jury trials for 10 years. Right. I realized when you go into a courtroom and you get a sense of this, you know, uh, people in the audience who aren't lawyers, you get a sense of this in a really good crime drama, even TV or film drama, if they do a good job of capturing what's going on, the, the really tense drama that goes on in a courtroom in real time, unscripted. Well, on TV, it's scripted, but in real time, in the real world, it is all unscripted. Right. And you really have to have your awareness at peak and be, be sensitive to everything that's happening. Almost with eyes in the you know eyes in the back of your head, uh, in order to be able to just take it all in, process it, and make it work for you from moment to moment to moment in a trial. Because if you're on, if the jury's in the room, you're on. By definition, that means the judge is speaking, your opponent is speaking, witness is speaking, or you're speaking. And uh, during any of those events you have to have your awareness at its absolute peak. And that's a difficult thing to, it's easy to say. It's incredibly difficult to convey or get the students to practice. That's why I'm so intrigued. I get, I get your explanation completely. And in fact, I'm going to ask you to, to well, I, I guess I'll get a copy of this tape. <laughs> yes, and I'll, I'll listen to it. I'll make my own transcript. But, but this is an area that is deeply... Uh, interesting to me, both as a teacher and uh, I guess as a uh, designer thinker. Yeah, one of the yeah, as a person who studies conversation, does something called conversation analysis, where we look at these these details. One of the important elements in what we do, at least the way we do it, is that the first act is not interpretive in terms of why a person did something because you I will enter in all kinds of bias and assumptions, but to describe how it's done, you right? And to look at it in the larger context of the flow of interaction. So to be able to see how like a system, like your rules, right? How one thing connects to a previous thing and then to the next thing. If we change this one thing, it might not really change much at all before or after, mm -hmm. but it might change a whole lot if we change it significantly or just make the right small modification going back to your earlier point that then can yield major changes and for for example it might just be as simple as a pause you know mm -hmm. if my wife asked me you know how was her day fine how was her day fine i mean just that little bit of a pause yeah. can have major implications on how the next turn that she that she provides um, is treated right and yeah. going back to the complexity that's a lot to take in <laughs> that's a yeah. lot to take in and so we don't do this all the time in our talk most of the time we just kind of go along with the system we go along yeah. with the structure of talk we go along with the system of the school we go along with how the law works but it's when we stop and notice and this i think goes you know the stuff about your activism i want to talk about when we stop and notice now we're on the hook with what do we do about it yeah now we have a decision to make because now we see things as they are, how it mm. works. Mm -hmm. And what do we do with that? Especially if how we see it works does not comport with how we believe it should be. Yeah. 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 That disconnect is profound. And of course, 
all kinds of cognitive biases come rolling into that vacuum to fill that, uh, you know, power abhors a vacuum. And uh, so do cognitive biases. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. You know, and uh, that's okay. And, you know, on on the website, which I think is yours, climate-activist.com, there is an amazing, and I'm kind of curious about it, this amazing uh, chart about activism, protest, non-cooperation, interference with all these different examples. You know, kind of two questions. One, you know, how did you come up with this? And number two, you know, at what point did you decide in your work? Because people might look at, well, he's a general counsel for high tech companies. He's working quote unquote for the man or woman or person. Yeah. But now he's got a climate change website with all this material on, you know, civil disobedience or anything else to try to provide examples of how to make significant change when systems themselves refuse to. Yeah. So, uh, quick history. Uh, I studied marine biology, actually minored in college, and I had every intention of doing a double degree in law school, JD, LLM, in uh, environmental and oceanographic sciences, which is why I went to University of Miami. Long story short, uh, I didn't have the money available to do a dual degree program, so I gave up on doing the environmental piece and just went straight through law school and uh, was steered in the direction of courtroom work. Uh, I came to Stanford to re-engage and I did my JSM at Stanford in uh, international environmental law and with with an emphasis on climate change uh, as well. And that's where the interest in climate change began. Uh, and uh, I spoke a little bit about the thesis, which was looking at the applicability of design, specifically software design. I also looked at fuzzy systems uh, theory with respect to making better environmental law and policy. I was really focusing on designing uh, environmental treaties. Uh, one that that was fairly recent at the time that I was in school was the Montreal Protocol okay. on ozone, uh, which is one of the very, very few international or global environmental treaties that actually worked and worked really well. In, and I write about this in, in my book text. So um, the migration, I, I went back to work. Uh, because I couldn't find a job after school. I couldn't find a, a, a job in environmental law that suited me. Chevron was willing to hire me, but I was not willing to <laughs> yeah, work Yeah, I, I don't know that was the direction you were aiming for. <laughs> <laughs> no. And so uh, Sierra Club called me up uh, and said, you know, I'm embarrassed to, to, I have to call you, uh, but I'm embarrassed to tell you that all we have is an intern slot at the moment. It was a bad time in the marketplace anyway, sure. so I don't want to bl- lay the blame off, but there were no environmental jobs to have. And, and uh, I had school debt, et cetera. So I had to go back to work. Um, but uh, I finally arrived and, and I worked in one of my companies was actually an organizational design consultancy. So I, I got another chance to do a deep dive into design there. Uh, so when I started teaching, I realized I'm just going to, just do the research to pull these things together. Uh, some negotiation, some design, uh, some of my environmental interest. I pulled up old papers and uh, books that 
I, I had kept on the shelves, et cetera. Uh, what you're talking, to, what you're alluding to on the website is sort of a result of my spending many hours uh, looking basically on the internet for what seemed to be the most current, what seemed to be the most state of the art uh, representations of environmental activism. Most of it's environmental, maybe not all of it, but most of it's environmental activism. And I, I was looking for different kinds, different, you know, there's the individual activism where, uh, I think I refer to, I don't have it in front of me, but I think I made reference to Woody Harrelson and the small group of people who climbed up the Golden Gate Bridge and got themselves arrested for hanging a banner. Right. It was lumber, uh, uh, the Maxim lumber. Uh, issue, uh, and Julia Butterfly Hill deserves, you know, mention in, in that same breath as a, as the woman who shut down Maxim's cutting of old growth, uh, years ago. Um, and then I looked, I, and I just assembled what I thought was a kind of a starter kit. It's by no means, uh, uh, complete. And I don't think one could ever really scour the internet for a complete capture of all the different types of activism that are available. But uh, I started looking at activism uh, and this may resonate with you uh, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. I started looking at activist stories that many of us are familiar with, ones that are fairly popular that people have will have likely read about. Uh, it includes uh, one of my favorites, Patrick Kelly, who founded the Green Party in Germany uh, years ago, or the battle in Seattle in 1999. Where I they, remember that, yeah. The, uh, and there's a really good documentary on that, and also a film uh, version of it. It's starring, not surprisingly, Woody Harrelson. Um, but the one that, that, that I sort of really got my uh, attention and my juices flowing because I didn't really know that much about it was how Arab Spring started. Sure. Um, uh, and how, because what I was looking for is what constitutes, what do we have in front of us in the last 30 years that, that uh, are, um, that evidence successful act activism as opposed to unsuccessful activism. So right. I would argue the battle in Seattle was successful in one sense. It got a lot of media attention. It drew attention to global capitalism and it put a lot of people in the streets and it created the drama. But it was such a conflict that after they shut down the conference and everybody went their own way, there was nothing right. that left could be done because there was no opportunity. There was no bridge built between the parties to platform a negotiation, a dialogue to move forward, to try and achieve some progress for the activist goals. Right. Uh, same thing holds true, of course, for uh, Occupy Wall Street. I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, The Occupy movement. They did a great job of getting people on the ground for a long period of time and drawing world's attention. They had absolutely no plan. There was no design uh, prior to pulling the trigger on the action that would lead to a reasonable path towards uh, some sort of progress. 
Right. I mean, they didn't even, they were not even successful in extracting from corporate America, from Wall Street, uh, a collective billion dollar donation to some group of charities uh, for the poor and disadvantaged. Right. That should have been something they could easily have gotten. They didn't get that because they didn't design it into their plan. Then I go to Arab Spring and I read the story of Mohammed Bouaziz and how, you know this story, but I'll, I'll tell it for the audience. You'll Please. correct me if I get it wrong. Uh, Mohammed was a young man who actually wanted to, he lived in the uh, outskirts of a town. He was a farmer with his father. They had a small plot of land. Uh, he wanted to, to go to college. Um, his father became ill. Um, he had taken out a bank loan, actually, to irrigate the land to try and increase its uh, productivity. But his father became ill, so Mohammed had to go help on the farms, put his education aspirations on the side. His uncle took over for his father, and they couldn't make the farm work. They couldn't pay for the bank loan, and the bank took the farm. So Muhammad, in order to support his family, started taking day loans, literally day loans from uh, probably loan sharks in order to buy fruits and vegetables that he would put in his wheelbarrow. He'd go into market and he would sell fruits and vegetables on a daily basis with out of a wheelbarrow with a scale to try and make enough money every day to go back and pay the day loan and maybe have a little something left over for his family. Yeah. He was doing this and... He became the target of corrupt public officials, police and others, who started hassling him for presumably bribes to continue to do his work under the guise that you need a license to do this. Um, so one day, and he said no, he, he refused to, to give the bribe. And finally, they took his wheelbarrow, they threw his vegetables across the street, they broke his, his scale, and... They all disappeared and left him sitting in the street. Well, it, I almost tear up when I tell this story uh, because you, you have to feel. Right. You have to feel it. Uh, so Muhammad goes down to whatever is the local uh, power, the local right. government, uh, the local constable, whatever, tries to get a meeting with somebody in authority who will just say, Give him his wheelbarrow back. Give him the scale back. Give him his stuff back. Let him keep doing what he's doing. He can't even get a meeting with anybody in power because he's from a lower stratum on the socioeconomic ladder and they're not going to talk to him. So, yeah, we know what happens. He goes out into the street, douses himself in gasoline and lights himself on fire. And he's dead in, inside 48 hours, right. self-immolation. But what's so amazing is that that event is what triggered Arab Spring. At right. first, it started with local Tunisians who rose up against the government because they, too, were sick and tired of the corruption, the daily corruption in the streets that had become so rampant. and. Tunisia, pardon the pun, uh, lit up and there were huge protests around the country. The president of Tunisia had been in power for 23 years, probably democratically elected, I'm not sure, but then it usurped power. He had been in power for 23 years 
Right. Basically a strong man. He was chased out of Tunisia in two weeks based on this public uprising, which began and right. clearly was triggered by Mohammed Bazizi's act. So the president of Tunisia runs to Paris. France kicks him out. He finds Saudi Arabia is willing to take him in. So he's gone. And I don't know what uh, government took his place. Doesn't much matter for the, the purposes of the story. And then this obviously catches fire across other nations uh, in North Africa and then into the Middle East as well. And as I recall, the way I wrote it up, 11 different countries were involved. Uh, uh, Libya uh, pulled Qaddafi uh, uh, out into the streets right. and actually executed him in the streets. There was revolt in uh, six or eight of the countries overturned their government in a matter of months. Right. And I, I am just beginning to try and get my mind wrapped around what is, what is the context? What is the scenario? What are the elements that need to exist for a single individual actor's action? And it does not have to, and it should never have to be self-immolation or self-harm. Right. For one individual's action to trigger this movement that is capable of toppling governments and effecting change, whether the change was, was all that everybody desired long run, that's a different part of the story. But Mohammed Baziz was one person acting. Uh, Patrick and, and acting alone in response to the government. Patrick Kelly was a person who decided to do her activism from within government. She joined the Green Party and became a member, the first Green Party mem uh, member of German par parliament. Um, and in Seattle, uh, like I said before, they had uh, enormous impact on the street for four days. And then uh, like uh, snowfall in the spring, it, it, it melted on the sidewalk and was gone. Right. And I'm trying to figure out where design can help activists improve the actions that they want to take so that they have the best chance of effecting real change in the counterparties with whom they're dealing, who are the people who are capable of creating that change. And that usually means governments and corporations. So having said all that, please weigh in on Tunisia. I'd like your perspective. I know this is something you know well. Well, I, you know, not, you know, the particulars of it you've covered. I think, you know, that this larger question of Number one, what difference can I make, whoever the I is, right? And I was thinking about this before we talked today, that at a time when there, it seems like there's so much to do, that everyone wants to do something, but yet because there's so much to do, people feel like they can't do anything. And, and, and this idea of what, whether I, you know, like, what can I do to do anything around something? And, you know, whether it's, you know, recycling. Or, you know, 
uh, obviously not self-immolation, but some instances that's what people have done, or whether it's, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, and a train strike, which, you know, even with somebody like uh, Rosa Parks, we're taught that Rosa Parks just decided that she was going to not give up her seat, but we know right. yeah. that it was designed, right? Going back to your point of design there and yeah. watching the movie Selma was so fascinating because it got into the design of the movement with intention and purpose and savvy and understanding and risk to have as maximal an impact of as possible where if they didn't have that kind of approach, the likelihood of success might've been lessened. Yeah. Like with these other examples you were given. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and you that's, know, that's a fascinating thing to think about in terms of the direction, the re- directed action for change that yeah, seems you know, spontaneous, but versus the spontaneous action for change, which does not lead to long lasting change. It's interesting. You bring up Rose Parks. Uh, I agree with everything you said there. Um, I, I did a pretty deep dive on the Emmett Till story. Okay. And, um, you know, most people know that Emmett Till was a 14-year-old African-American kid from Chicago who went down to Mississippi and ended up uh, getting uh, lynched right. in the, the most direct sense of the term. And... um but there's a connection that I'm not sure everybody knows about Emmett Till uh, and Rosa Parks because he was killed, I'd say, five, four or five months before uh, Rosa Parks was arrested on a, in the Montgomery bus situation. Emmett Till's mother went down to claim his body in Mississippi and saw the enormous damage that was caused. And many of you people in your audience may have seen the photographs. She took his body back to Chicago to have a funeral and she insisted that it would be open cap casket. And either she was approached or she asked a photographer, a particular photographer from jet magazine, which was a brand new startup. I think it had been in business for less than a year in Chicago jet magazine dedicated to the black community in Chicago, uh, sent a photographer to, uh, the funeral and Mrs. Till went out of her way to bring the photographer into the room privately to photograph the body. And that photographer took very stark photographs. He didn't take distant photographs. He didn't try and hide or pixelate, uh, nor did the editors of Jet Magazine. So there are people who are consciously making a decision here. We're going to take stark photographs of this ugliness and we're going to publish them with, you know, in their starkest form and put it out there to the world. And this was driven by Mrs. Till's, you know, decision to make a statement and, right. and make the world see it. She wanted to stick it in the face of the man. And she did that markedly well. In an interview many, many years later, Rosa Parks actually said that one of the things that gave her the courage to stand up in the bus that day, or to, or I shouldn't say stay, stay seated, right. uh, to stay seated on the bus that day, stand up for her rights, uh, 
was that she remembered seeing the photographs of Emmett Till in Jet Magazine three or four months later. And she felt that gave her courage to finally do what they had been planning on doing. So there's a real direct connection, uh, completely unintended, I think, by Mrs. Till. In other words, Mrs. Till had no idea who Rosa Parks was. She had no idea that the that the Montgomery bus strike was was brewing down there, et cetera. Uh, but you can have positive unintended consequences of certain actions. So in a way, Mrs. Till's decision to do what she did as an act in an activist way had f- knock on effects for Rosa Parks uh, in Birmingham. And I, would, I, just, I just think those kinds of connections uh, tell us something about um, the, the good design in the sense that good design, uh, I'll close with this. Uh, please. I'm going to forget his name. It may, it may come to me. It may not. There's a... Um, engineer who designs MRI machines for General Electric, uh, who has since left General Electric, and he's become uh, a speaker on design uh, in the U.S. And uh, there's a longer story about it. You can find his uh, TED Talk on YouTube where he talks about his redesign of pediatric MRI machines right. to create an environment. You've probably heard of this. Where the canoes a, and the pirate ships and all. Yeah, you know. pirate ship environment, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And in one of his TED Talks, he says, he says, it's kind of a throwaway line, but it struck me. Uh, and this is sort of what, what, I, what, I, what I think of when I think of Emmett Till's mom. When you design things well, good things happen. Right. And they not always something you are designing towards making happen or that you think you can make happen with the design. But when you design things well, good things happen, good things follow. And I think there's a lot, there's a lot in that. Undoubtedly. And when you think about the larger implications of your design, not just from a single site perspective, but from an integrated systems perspective, we can start to think about how those design decisions, whether simple or complex, can lead to massive change in those systems Mm -hmm. when we understand how those systems work and we have the the diversity of expertise, experience, perspective to consider those options in a way that's purposeful, uh, intentional, and driven to have a positive change. So there's a lot to chew on there, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But, well, yeah. I do definitely do appreciate your time and taking us through the, the, the amazing work and journey that, that you've been going under in terms of, from Miami, I still want to, at some point, we have to hear the Miami courtroom stories. I think there's some stories there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there are. Uh, you know, there's a couple of Miami Vice stories. Um, and a couple of 
Ocean Drive, South Beach stories as well, maybe with another episode. Well, I was imagining that the University of Miami has to have a good law department given its football team. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, it's funny. Uh, when I went there, the football team was terrible. The, uh, that's how old I am. The, the team only started getting good uh, after I left. But uh, I still lived in Miami, so I was able to go to the Orange Bowl from time the the old Orange Bowl from time to time and 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 watch the team. But they were they were really quite bad while I was a student. I've always ascribed to the theory that the the, the there's an inverse relationship between the quality of the football team and the quality of the education. But that's a bias that I brought from my Division Three uh, liberal arts college. Uh, experience at Carleton in Minnesota because uh, it was it was a really good educational experience at least for me and uh, since I was the uh, third on the depth chart at tight end I (laughs) and played I think maybe maybe half a dozen plays the entire two seasons there Um, I uh, I always ascribe to that theory it's you know one of my best students uh, at Stanford Law School actually played linebacker for Harvard undergraduate. So I think there's, uh, and Harvard had a pretty good football team. Uh, I don't think there's any correlation. You know, the, the truth is the best football team in the country, whether it's LSU, Ohio State, whatever it is, you can go get a the world-class education at any university at any university, if you want to. Right. And right. if you want to, and if you go to Harvard, Yale, or any of the other big name schools and you don't want to get a world class education, you can damn well do that too. <laughs> <laughs> and we know those students. Yeah. <laughs> We've all, we yeah. all, all had those students. Well, yeah. I, I appreciate you taking the time to take us through your journey and, and really appreciate you sharing your work and your perspectives. It's uh, inspiring, motivational, and draws the attention to how to how design just doesn't happen in these schools. It should be happening everywhere. Yeah, I agree. And thank you for the time uh, and letting me ramble a bit. Um, I hope you can edit this down to something consumable (laughs) (laughs) for your audience. We want to thank Professor and Attorney David Johnson of Stanford University and climate-activist.com for providing us with inspirational words and ideas for designing social change. You can learn more about David and his work, as always, in our show notes. And we'd love to get in conversation with you. What stories of social change do you find inspiring? What are the wicked problems that you think are in need of our most urgent attention? What do we need to be looking at today for five years, for 10 years out? And importantly, what's your opinion of lawyers? Hmm. You know, a good question. Shoot us a message over at feedback at ExperienceX Design. We love getting a conversation or hop in on our LinkedIn page and we will see you there. And as always, thanks for joining us. It's been a very exciting couple of weeks uh, on the EXD home front. A lot of travel, a lot of great conversations with experienced designers. A lot of big things coming up, including the Experience by Design Institute, which we will be pushing and talking about here shortly to allow Mm -hmm. you to become the experienced designers that you want to be. So stay tuned right here in the space for all of those updates. And as always, if you are an experienced design company or professional, 
know, looking to increase your profile, please do reach out to us to talk about sponsoring an episode or even being on an episode. And as always, you can show your support and appreciation by buying us a coffee through our website and buying us a coffee through the link provided there. Share your feedback with us at feedback.experiencexdesign.com. And if you want to subscribe to be on top of all the EXD news, head over to our website, give us your email and be part of the conversation. And with that, be well, be kind, be safe, be healthy, be here for the next experience by design.